The Eagle and Child, Episode 16. Mere Christianity, Book 3, Chapter 4, Morality and Psychoanalysis. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week my friend Matt and I share a beer, and we discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and today we're looking at morality and psychoanalysis. And I am today joined by every psychoanalyst's dream, Matt. <laughs> You're going to have to let me know how I'm supposed to interpret that. No, it's, it's, it's like the pinky and brain thing. You just interpret it in whatever way makes you feel happiest. I, I usually do that for most things in life. <laughs> in today's chapter, as the title suggests, we're going to look into Christian morality and psychoanalysis, which are two very loaded terms. And so Lewis is going to explain them. And what's interesting is we're going to find that they're rather complementary rather than contradictory. And then after learning what they mean... I love that we're going to come to these two very beautiful takeaways about what these terms teach us about judging others and the Christian teaching on judgment, and also the importance of turning our hearts to God. We haven't said this in a while, and it's probably worth saying, we're not experts. We don't have degrees in C.S. Lewis. We're just enthusiasts. We love this guy. We want to read his works and share it with other people who aren't that familiar. I don't have a degree, but I did take a course on him. Okay, apparently Matt is more qualified than I am, so listen <laughs> well, to him a little bit more. I'd say my degree or my course gives me a leg up, your British accent gives you a leg up, so it seems fair. I think it evens out. <laughs> okay, so what's our quote of the week? This one's actually from Mere Christianity, and this chapter, I thought it was so brilliant, we needed to highlight it. Lewis says, some of us who seem quite nice people may in fact have made so little use of a good heredity in a good upbringing, that we are really worse than those whom we regard as fiends. Hush. Yeah, that that pierced me the first time I heard it. So we've mainly been drinking beer up until now, but since it's the new year, uh, we thought we'd mix things up a little bit. So today we are drinking some scotch. We are drinking uh, Laphroaig 10-year. Matt, have you had this? I've never had this. I'm a huge Scotch fan, but my palate is very narrow between Macallan and Dewar's. Okay, well, this this Scotch is going to put hair on your chest. <laughs> I've been uh. told that with lots of different things my whole <laughs> life. It's not working. <laughs> oh, this 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 will work. This will work. Okay. Uh, the, the, <laughs> among my friends, we joke that the tasting notes for Laphroaig are dirt, band-aids, and rusty nails. Ooh. This is this is incredible. So, would you say? Would you say before I smell this, it's a smokier one or less? Very. Smoky? This is very very peaty. Ooh. And uh, we're actually drinking it out of uh, Glencairn glasses. Uh, these are my Catholic man show Glencairn glasses. They're laser etched with lasers, which means an extra manly. Uh, but it's it's kind of like pear shaped, so that when you stick your nose in the glass, it's a very narrow opening, so you get the full smell of the scotch. I'll bring next time. If we're gonna, are we doing this again next week? Sure. Well, we'll, yeah. do, we'll, do, we'll do scotches in January. Perfect. I'll bring, I have some special, like this, but custom-made scotch glasses I just got for Christmas. Nice. So we'll break them in. Okay. I want to smell this before, too. <laughs> well, tell you what, let's, let's cheers. Okay, cheers. Ooh, PD is correct. <laughs> you can feel your beard growing straight away. <laughs> McAllen's on the opposite spectrum of this. 
Ooh, that's really good. Mm -hmm. My friend Joe says it's like drinking dirt. <laughs> you might have just opened me up to smoky peaty scotches. Uh, I've done a service to mankind. You have. Well, you've done a service <laughs> to me, that's for sure. In the context of the new year and new year's resolutions, I think this is a great one. This drinking is... scotch instead of beer. <laughs> As the listeners might have picked up from some of the ones from the beginning, I don't like beer that much. I was a blue moon shock top kind of guy, which are the fruitiest beers, citrusy. So anyways, going to something I love. I'm, I'm all for this. And speaking of New Year's resolutions, do you have any? Drink more scotch. No. <laughs> no, the short answer actually is I've never been a big fan of New Year's resolutions. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I kind of just believe you should always be asking yourselves what you need to work on, or at least that's how I approach life. So... I, my life is attempting to be a New Year's resolution, which also means I fail every single month, but I always have something I'm working on, so I have nothing new. But as we were talking about beforehand, the current things are just cutting TV completely uh, is one of them. Yeah, but not movies. We're fixing your movie watching habits. Oh, you're right. Uh, for those of you who didn't see it, I put up a blog post on restlesspilgrim.net that listed out all the movies that I want Matt to watch, or the ones that I think he needs to watch in order just to be a well-rounded human being. And this list would have been twice as big if it wasn't for previous work colleagues who have already <laughs> attempted to fix this. And that's the only reason I've got maybe half of the amount that I used to have that I need to watch. Which is still pretty pathetic. It is. It is. But we can add Star Wars because I've seen all of them now. <laughs> Watched them all in a month leading up to the most recent one. And you saw that? I did. I, I saw it. I dressed up as Kylo Ren. <laughs> Which now everyone is probably thinking, wow, what a nerd. <laughs> but it was not by my own doing. It was by a, a, a friend asking okay. me to do it with them. That's okay. Own it. Yeah, you're right. It's great. What was fun is they rented the theater the day before, and there was probably 40 or 50 kids that came up to take a picture with me. I, I, I was not expecting that. I didn't know what to expect. One kid at the way into the theater goes, with full enthusiasm, Kylo Ren, Kylo, can I get a picture with you? I was like, man, this feels great. <laughs> I would be so corrupt if I was a celebrity. <laughs> I think he's falling away to the dark side. <laughs> uh, good start to a New Year's episode. In the previous episode, we were looking at the question of what a truly Christian society would look like. And so in today's chapter, we look at how we might bring this about. And Jack begins by saying that in order to build this Christian society, we need to do two things. The first is we need to see how we can apply the golden rule, the do as you would be done by, to society. But the second is becoming the sort of people who would actually do this. If we know how to apply the golden rule, that we would actually do it. And this is what we're focusing on in this chapter, that second part, mm -hmm. correct? What does it mean to be a person that would actually implement this? And all of this, this Christian behavior, it, it's all about attempting to fix the human machine, as Jack describes it. But he says that there's something else out there which claims to do something very similar. Psychoanalysis. What is psychoanalysis and how does it actually fit in with building a Christian society? Which actually reminds me of a joke. How many psychotherapists does it take to change a light bulb? Just one. So long as the light bulb wants to change. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. Thank you, thank you. So Lewis begins by making a distinction. He distinguishes between psychoanalysis and the philosophical views of men such as Freud. And he actually has some pretty harsh words for Freud. He says that, you know, when he's talking about neurotics, you know, he's talking as he's a specialist in this subject. 
And he says, then it's a very good idea to pay attention to what he says. But he says that when Freud is talking more generally about philosophy, he says he's speaking as an amateur. Isn't that so true of everybody? It's amazing. We, we, we're, we're really specialized in one thing. We, and we do know it really well, usually. Mm-hmm. And we assume we know everything else just as well. It actually reminds me of Stephen Hawking. I'm sorry, he's a great physicist, but he's a terrible philosopher. I feel that way a little bit. This is going to create controversy. I feel a little bit about Richard Dawkins. Yeah. He's, oh, no. he's I'm a- sure he's an amazing zoologist. But yeah, in his The God Delusion, <laughs> The Five Ways of Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest minds the world has ever produced, and with sophisticated philosophical arguments, he tries to deal with it in like a page and a half. <laughs> and it's really clear he actually hasn't even understood some of the arguments. Yeah. Anywho. So, Anywho. <laughs> so Lewis makes the point that we can listen to people like Freud and Jung when they're talking about their specialty subject, which in this case is psychoanalysis. But the question is, is psychoanalysis contrary to Christian morality, Christianity? And in Jack's assessment, psychoanalysis itself is not in the least contradictory to Christianity. Its techniques overlap with Christian morality at some points, but it does not run the same course all the way for the two techniques are doing rather different things. And going into this, honestly, I didn't know what psychoanalysis was. I know, I know a general buzz term, but mm. I had no idea what it was really referring to. And I found when he split the moral choice into two parts, it to be incredibly clear. Think of every time you have to make a decision, a choice, a behavior, an action. There's two parts to it. There's the first part, which is the act of choosing. But then there's the second part that's the raw material, the feelings that are associated with that choice. In that raw material, those feelings can then be split again into two categories, the normal and the abnormal. An example of a normal feeling would be a man's desire for a woman. An example of an abnormal feeling would be a man's perverted desire for a woman, a distorted desire. Another example of an abnormal might be an irrational fear of spiders. With this breakdown of the act of choosing and the feelings, psychoanalysis, according to Lewis, I'm not an expert, I'm trusting him, is focused on that abnormal part, that part of us or a being that has gone wrong that's, that's making the act of choosing or distorting the actual act of choosing. So psychoanalysis is dealing with that subpart of the whole process. And it's specifically dealing with the raw materials. It's not yes. about the choice itself. It's the raw materials that you're using in the process of making that choice. Yes. And a lot of this raw material was out of our control. A lot of it shaped in the early years of our lives before we've developed the parts of our brain that can reason or rationalize or develop, I guess, good raw material. So if you unfortunately were picked on in high school. That's going to affect your raw material in a negative way. If you had abusive parents, if you had just a bad examples from your parents, your raw material is going to be affected in more of that abnormal way. And how much can you be blamed for that? Mm-hmm. Have you actually ever had anything like therapy yourself or counseling? Not really. I've gone to two therapy sessions in my life. See, I went for about a year. Yeah. Um, if anybody is thinking about doing it, go do it. It was worth every moment, every penny. I should say, too, that's not because I think I don't need it. I have. Oh, don't worry. We all know you really need it. <laughs> I have. I actually have incredible friends slash spiritual mentors that have pretty much been therapists to me my whole life. My best friend from high school, 
is becoming a therapist right now. <laughs> so I take all credit for his ability to be a good therapist because he's just helped me through life. I think this is just showing that my introduction of you was really just prophetic in this episode. <laughs> I think, oh man, when you did say that, I'm like, yeah, I probably am. <laughs> yeah. Jack's key distinction, though, I think is worth emphasizing that there's a difference between the choice and the raw materials. This is what he says. What psychoanalysis undertakes to do is to remove the abnormal feelings, to give the man better raw material for his acts of choice. And this is the line I particularly like. Bad psychological material is not a sin, but a disease. It doesn't need to be repented of, but to be cured. And by the way, that is very important. I think this really crystallizes in the example that he uses. He talks about there being three men and they go to war. Now, the first man, he's just got an ordinary fear of danger. We all have that. But he subdues it by moral effort and he becomes a brave man. He then says, let's consider the other two. Now, both of these have, as a result of things in their subconscious, an exaggerated, irrational fear. But then a psychoanalyst comes along and cures them. What he's effectively done is he's put these two men back into the same position as the first man. The psychoanalytical problem is now solved. But this is where the moral issue then begins. Because one man might use this healing to do what he actually wants to do, to serve his country, to do his duty, to protect those he loves. But the other man might just use this as a means of getting out of it. This is, this is what Lewis says. While I'm very glad I now feel moderately cool under fire, of course, it doesn't alter the fact that I'm still jolly well determined to look after number one and let the other chap do the dangerous job wherever I can. And as I've said before, when we consider that Lewis is using examples of war, this is a man who was in the trenches of World War I and lived through World War II. In essence, Lewis is pointing out, even after that irrational fear was fixed, there's a choice to be selfless or self-centered, to go to war or not to go to war. And the, the psychoanalysis is not, it's allowing that choice to be made freely, mm -hmm. but the choice still has to be made. Exactly. When we go through psychological trauma, it affects us and it can constrain us and hurt us and warp our decisions. That if that gets fixed, we could make better decisions. And this entire area, the, the, the point that Jack comes back to again and again, is that our human judgments and the judgments of God are very different. Because we look just at actions, whereas God can see what's going on on the inside. When I, came to, when I was reading this chapter in preparation for it, I probably have 20 of these spots in the book, but on top, I, I wrote amazing section. This blew my mind my junior year of college when I read this. The first example he gives is of a neurotic who hates cats. He says that when a neurotic who has a pathological horror of cats forces himself to pick up a cat for some good reason, it's quite possible that in God's eyes, he has shown more courage than a healthy man may have shown in winning the VC. By the way, the VC is the Victoria Cross. It's a medal awarded in our military. When I came across that, I was curious what it meant. And I thought, well, David will probably just talk about it on the episode. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a purple heart. <laughs> that makes sense. Another quote that provides a, a good example of this, Lewis states, When a man who has been perverted from his youth and taught that cruelty is the right thing does some tiny little kindness or refrains from some cruelty he might have committed, and thereby, perhaps, risks being sneered at by his companions, he may, in God's eyes, be doing more than you and I would do if we gave up life itself for a friend. Isn't that incredible? 
I mean, you wouldn't initially say that. You wouldn't say that somebody is perhaps doing something terribly brave when they're picking up a cat or somebody doing something tremendously kind and tremendously heroic when they offer some small kindness to somebody. But when it's painted within that backdrop, you can start to see why that given somebody's background, these might be tremendous acts of heroism. Anytime I'm judging someone, that crosses my mind. And he challenges even the good. Because he makes the point that some people might just be coasting through life on their gifts. He says that it might just be a result of good heredity or upbringing. And that if you took that away, there would be far worse people. Sounds like my quote of the day. It sounds exactly like the quote of the day. <laughs> and he asks this question, and this I find kind of chilling. Can we be quite certain how we should have behaved if we had been saddled with this psychological outfit, and then the bad upbringing, and then with the power, say, of Himmler? This is why Christians are told not to judge. That scares me a little bit. I ask myself, am I doing relatively well for what I was given? Or am I doing relatively poorly for what I was given? Exactly. And considering what would it take for you to sin gravely? And I think in those honest moments, we can realize, I don't think it would actually take too much prodding and pushing. And then Lewis brings that section to a conclusion by saying that this will all come out in the wash, so to speak. At death, we will see these distinctions clearly. He says that most of man's psychological makeup is probably due to his body. And when his body dies, all that will fall off him. And the real central man, the thing that he chose, that made the best or worst out of his material, will stand naked. All sorts of nice things that we thought were our own, but which were really due to good digestion, will fall off some of us. All sorts of nasty things that were due to complexes or bad health will fall off others. We shall then, for the first time, see everyone as he really is. There will be surprises. I don't like surprises. <laughs> so that's the first point he makes from psychoanalysis. This final point that Lewis makes is we should not look at Christian morality anymore as this grand bargain, which I believe a lot of people struggle with. We've, we've spoken about this in earlier chapters. Yes, this very transactional idea. As Lewis says, if you keep a lot of rules, I'll reward you. And if you don't, I'll do the other thing. I like how he puts the <laughs> other thing. And that's not at all what Christian morality is about. Christian morality, first of all, going back to what we talked about in the beginning, is about writing the machine. In writing the machine towards God, this turning to God and wanting Him, wanting heaven for eternity and desiring Him. Our choices are you going to bring us towards Him, towards heavenly creatures, or towards hellish creatures? Lewis says that we have all these innumerable choices along our life, and each time we make a choice, we're turning the central thing of ourselves, either a little close to heaven or a little close to hell. He says at each and every moment, we're progressing from either one state or the other which I think would make a really neat trick when you're trying to work out what you should do in a situation. Is this particular choice going to take me a little closer to heaven or a little closer to that other place? And what I like about phrasing it that way is it's all about the journey, the process. If you're starting from a pretty low point, you've made a lot of mistakes in life, but you can see yourself turning in the right direction, you're not there yet. And I'm, quite frankly, I don't think we're ever going to be there on earth. Yeah, yeah. speak for yourself. <laughs> But it, it's, it makes it less demoralizing. Mm. It's very easy to get caught up in the gap between where you are and where you need to be. What's more important is focus on the process. 
I mean, we're at the beginning of a new year when people are going to be making New Year's resolutions. Those resolutions are much easier to achieve if we achieve them in a stepwise fashion. Yes. Can't say, oh, I'm going to lose 40 pounds by the end of January. You're probably going to fail. Yeah. And I remember hearing Matthew Kelly cite a study where a doctor had been trying to get patients to lose weight and been utterly failing. And so instead, what he started doing was he would tell an obese patient, okay, every morning for one minute, just one minute, I want you to stand, not run, not walk. I just want you to stand on the treadmill just for one minute. And then he comes back the next week, says, okay, this time I'd like you to stand there for two minutes. And then, okay, I want you to now start walking for one of those minutes and standing for one and slowly bit by bit building it up. Because at each stage, people can see their progress. They can think, oh, I can actually do this. The trouble is when we try and turn around on a dime, we often fail. My news resolution is actually I'm reading through the Bible from cover to cover. And I have a reading plan. I have a small amount of reading I do each day. That is infinitely better than sitting down and trying to read Leviticus in one setting. This understanding of turning yourself towards heaven or hell helped Lewis really understand what he constantly read from Christian writers. And puzzled him. Yeah, it puzzled him at first, but now he gets it. He writes, That is why Christian writers can be so very strict at one moment and so very free and easy at another. They talk about mere sins of thoughts as if they were immensely important. And then they talk about the most frightful murderers and treacheries as if you had only got to repent and all would be forgiven. And Lewis summarizes this idea very well in one of his chapters in The Great Divorce. The Great Divorce is this book where each chapter is about another individual who could enter into heaven. They're in this gray area, this middle state, call it. And this person who is in heaven who comes down to help them in the process. So one of the chapters, the guy coming down from heaven to help the individual is the person that murdered the guy's son, the person who has a chance to get into heaven. And the, the murderer had dropped to his knees after he hit rock bottom and killed someone, repented, and sure enough, he's accepted into heaven. The other guy, it points out, I think it's George MacDonald or the main character points out, murdered the murderer in his heart every single day. So if we were judging based on external actions, you would think, well, the murderer is the wrong one. But really, the person who comes across as a good guy in his heart has turned so far away from heaven because he constantly murders him in his heart every day. As Lewis says in Mere Christianity, the bigness or smallness of the thing seen from the outside is not really what matters. And Lewis draws this chapter to a conclusion by pointing out that our choices are cumulative. If we repeatedly do good deeds, they accumulate. If we repeatedly do bad deeds, they also accumulate. And that affects our knowledge of and our sensitivity to both good and evil. So just think of it, for those of you Catholics out there, when you come out of confession, you are so sensitive to sin. You have just poured out your heart, you have heard the words of absolution, and you've been told to go and sin no more. You are immediately very sensitive to bad influences, to sinful inclinations. But what about if you, say, haven't been in six months, seven months, eight months? You progressively become desensitized to sin. And this is what Lewis says. When a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. A moderately bad man knows that he is not very good, but a thoroughly bad man thinks he's all right. 
So Matt, what did you say are the main points that we can draw out of this chapter? Because I think there are some very practical ones. Our raw material, the parts that we've had maybe less control over, that has been greatly influenced by external factors, has a big impact in our decisions, in our choices. And so we need to recognize, and I think psychoanalysis and therapy can be a good way to deal with that. I, I hate to throw this out, but it's true, prayer. I mean, praying to God, help me become a better person, can be really important in developing that freedom to choose properly. And then therefore, bring it to his last point, what is that choice? That choice is to choose God more. So when we, we understand that raw material is getting in the way of that choice, we work through that. We become more free to choose God and become a heavenly creature. And we're also more aware, don't judge others. In fact, just help them along the journey. Because you could be, speaking this out loud, I just thought of a new thing. You could be the person influencing the raw material in the negative way or the positive way. Be the positive. Be the positive. That's our new tagline. <laughs> Forget further up and further in. <laughs> no. <laughs> I get it. When I, I have a number of friends listening to this, and so often over New Year's, for example, we were cheersing, and everyone keeps bringing up further up. <laughs> further up. <in. laughs> As usual, the outline will be in the show notes. Please like, share, and subscribe. We're in all the places where you can find podcasts at this point. And did you forget to give us a Christmas present? Well, you could immediately rectify that by going to iTunes, rating us, and even if you're extra lovely, writing us a review. You can always contact us on the website. RestlessPilgrim.net. You can tweet us at Pints with Jack. And you can go and check out my post where we're trying to fix Matt's movie knowledge. <laughs> That's going to take a while. And also there's now an Instagram account. My friend's got to be dying because I've been the most anti-social media person in the world. <laughs> well, what we're going to do on the Instagram account is we'll be putting up images that are quotes of C.S. Lewis. They'll typically be the quote of the week. But also from time to time, as we get bored at work, we might throw together a few extra ones. Well, until next time. Further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>